Please open your Bibles with me to the book of the Psalms in Psalm 52. Let's read there the first four verses there in Psalm 52. The psalmist writes, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. The tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. And now if you would look with me in First Samuel, and we had a portion of First Samuel 21 read to us earlier at the outset. But if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Now this is what happened following that incident between David and Ahimelech, the priest. And so this event in 1 Samuel chapter 22 that we're going to read about is what prompted David to write Psalm 52. Now this is the evil, wicked, mischievous man that David is referring to. And that's Doeg, the Edomite, the descendant. Of Esau. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning there in verse 6, we read, When Saul heard that David was discovered and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, after his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Now this tells you something about Saul. He's standing there in a well-defended place with all his servants about him, and he's got spear in hand at the ready to stab someone. Verse 7. Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day? Verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Remember David and Ahimelech the priest were speaking. And he was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, and that thou hast given him bread, and a sword, and has inquired of him for God, that he should rise against me to lie in wait at this, at this, as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is faith, so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to, nor to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, 
thou and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned, and he fell upon the priests, and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, and oxen and asses and sheep, with the edge of the sword. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathiar, escaped and fled with David. And Abathiar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And David said unto Abathiar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safeguard. Now at some point after that conversation, David went off by himself and wrote Psalm 52. Now notice how Doeg lied about David and Ahimelech by not telling the whole truth to Saul. You see, he didn't tell King Saul that Ahimelech actually thought he was helping Saul's servants. Indeed, Doeg made it sound like Ahimelech was contrary to Saul, treasonously helping David instead. And so when Saul's men refused to kill God's priests, Doeg, the Edomite, that descendant from Esau, took pleasure in killing them. You see, Doeg hated the priests of the Lord. He hated those who stood for the gospel, and he gladly killed them. And so Doeg used this opportunity, that of killing the priests of the Lord and killing everybody in that city so he could gain Saul's favor and move up, as it were, the corporate ladder. You see, when Doeg heard that conversation between David and the priest, he was just another herdsman. But when this was all over, he was one of the chief herdsmen, having been promoted to be the one of to be one of Saul's chiefs, chiefs men, chiefest men. And so, all this wickedness, all this killing of God's priests, men and women, and imagine it, killing babies and children. Well, Doeg prospers by it. And you know, he wasn't one whit ashamed about it. Indeed, he boasted about it. What a coward to kill priests, men who never once held a sword. What a coward to kill men and women, children and babies. And so we see Doeg prospered by persecuting and killing God's people. Now, while most Christians in this country don't know persecution to that level of severity, now, indeed, some have. Nevertheless, all of us know something of what it feels like to be hated and for people to know, well, and for people to persecute us and then prosper for it. We all know how that feels. Now, beloved, most assuredly, we're going to be persecuted. But let's make sure it's not for our own sake or because of some wrong, wrong thing we do or for some ugly th thing that we say. Rather, beloved, let's make sure our being persecuted is for doing good. Let's make sure it's for Christ's sake. Well, pastor, 
How can I know the difference between doing good for my sake and for Christ's sake? Well, I'm not going to answer that question. You see, I don't need to, because our Lord already has. Keep your place in Psalm 52, and look there with me in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter chapter 6, and I'll begin reading there in verse 22. Our Lord and God declares in Luke 6, verse 22, Blessed are ye, blessed are ye, happy are you, beloved, when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Notice, not for your sake, but for his sake, beloved. And so rejoice when that happens. Our Lord says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Now that's happy. <laughs> leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. You see, the wicked will hate you if you do good for Christ's sake. And they'll hate you for his sake. And so, beloved... If we're going to be persecuted, if we're going to be persecuted, let's make sure and be sure we're persecuted for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, for our stand, for his gospel. You know, the world hates God's gospel, and they'll find you and persecute you and hate you for his sake. And so if you and I are going to be persecuted, beloved, let's be sure it's for Christ's sake and not our own. Beloved, we are going to suffer for Christ. For our Lord declares, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The apostle encourages God's people by exhorting them to continue in the faith and reminding us that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. But when we are persecuted, beloved, when the wicked persecutes us and they seemingly prosper over us and prevail over us in this time state upon the earth, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, for some of us, it will be easier than others. Some of us will experience that persecution which is unto death. What do I mean by that? Well, and it is a solemn thing for me to say this, it doesn't take long for someone to cut your head off. Now, perhaps some of you may feel that would be a terrible thing. I mean, I like my head where it is just fine. But some of us, beloved, will have our heads cut off for Christ's sake. And indeed, some of us already have. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and look there with me in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Do you see what is being set forth here, beloved? If our testimony is not for ourselves but rather for the word of God, for the testimony of Christ Jesus, our Lord, 
that testimony comprised of his sayings and not our own. And so when the enemy compels you to forsake Christ and to deny your confession and turn against him and you say no and get your head cut off, God's word ever so blessedly sets forth God's people as being the victors in Christ. You see, it's not those who are holding the sword who have triumphed, but rather you have, beloved. You see, in Christ, you're the conqueror, and it's God's enemies who shall be conquered. How was it that our Lord conquered? Through the means of his death, that sin-atoning sacrifice of his cross. You see, beloved, through his death, through washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb, by his quickening grace, we are made more than conquerors through him. You see, beloved, in Christ, we can't lose. Now, I don't know what this is going to look like. But when the enemy comes and they compel you to receive the mark of the beast and you say no, and they say, well, if you don't, we're going to cut your head off. Well, I suppose you can always tell them, yeah, well, I'm not surprised. I read about this in God's only holy book, the Bible. And it's not the Quran, it's not the Talmud, but the only holy book of God, the holy word of God we hold in our hands, beloved. Now listen to this. I recently heard the testimony of some children in Iraq. I look forward to meeting them one day in glory. Well, those followers of that wicked man, Muhammad, those ISIS butchers, came to the first child with a knife in his hand and said to the child, Will you deny Jesus Christ? The child said, No, I will not and her head was cut off in front of the other children. And then this antichrist, this enemy of the cross, went to the second child. Will you deny Jesus Christ? And the child said no. And every child, one by one, said no. Anybody want to know what happened to those children? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Look what it says about those who come up out of great tribulation and great persecution. Look what it says in verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. Our great shepherd, Christ Jesus the Lord, shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Beloved, never mind that gruesome video on the Internet. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, the children I mentioned, and every believer with them have won in and through Christ. The other side has lost. You see, beloved, you could find yourself in the blessed position, indeed the happy position, to witness for Christ with just a one-syllable, two-letter word. You know, some of us don't know how to witness. Perhaps one day you will. One day you might be asked, will you deny the Lord Jesus Christ? And you will testify with just one little word. No. And you've won the battle. You've won the war through him. And God has been glorified through his son that in all things he might have the preeminence, including our deaths. Our Lord declares, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. 
But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Beloved, he accomplished our warfare. On that day, whatever that day may bring, you will be immediately carried into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your body will be raised from the dead, and you shall enjoy the new earth and the new heavens forever and ever. Beloved, we are by God's grace what the word calls in Revelation, them that overcometh. Indeed, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, that's the ultimate persecution unto death. But having dealt with that, what about these other temporal time-state forms of persecution? I mean, when the wicked persecutes us and they seemingly prosper over us and prevail over us in this time-state upon the earth, what are we to do? What are we to do, beloved, when, like Doeg, they're not ashamed of the evil they've done, but rather boast about it? And so even though they've, they're not using a physical knife, still, nevertheless, they're slicing us up, figuratively speaking, and we don't even know about it till it's too late. And we discover their opposition, and it hurts, and they enjoy our pain. I mean, this is just sport for them, just devouring people with their thoughts, words, and actions. And so, beloved, what do we do when they seemingly prevail? What do we do when they do that wickedness and prosper? Well, how does David comfort himself in the psalm? Well, even though his enemy prevailed, the psalmist comforts himself, and it comforts us as well, beloved. He comforts himself with both the judgment and mercy of God. Now, this Doeg we read about, well, he's a picture of false religion a picture that illustrates those that trust in themselves. You see, those in false religion, they don't trust Christ. Rather, they boast about what they do. They boast in all their works that makes them, in their own eyes at least, and in the eyes of others, quote, good religious people. But those of you, by God's grace, who have been given eyes to see, we know that the works of the religious, the works of the self-righteous, are really nothing more than rebellious evil mischief. But they don't know it, and so they're boasting about it, and their sin is worse because it's sin against the continual goodness of God. And they just keep sinning more and more and more against God's goodness. And the false message that they preach is so deceitful, and it's the same message whether they be followers of Muhammad or the so-called followers of Christ. I mean, their message sounds good and holy, but it's not grace. Rather, it's the law they come preaching. It's something that you've got to do to save yourself rather than what Christ has done to save his people. And all those who follow false religion, that false religion of works, will die eternally, whatever the name of that religion be. All right, now returning to Psalm 52, look at what he says there in verse 2. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. It's like a barber shaving some guy's cheek and he slits his throat just before he knows it. You see, they don't love righteousness. They don't love good. They love evil. That's why they've got so many laws. It says there in the book of Proverbs, there in the last verse of chapter 10, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh forwardness. Just the other day, Sandra had to suffer the words of a wicked woman. Now, what made this woman wicked? 
was that she thought and taught that God's people can lose their salvation. You see, she's in that form of religion that thinks that because of their many rules and regulations, they will not lose their salvation. Now, I was just like her. I'm just as wicked as she is. But God has delivered me. He has made me to know what is acceptable, delivered me from those wicked lies, and, beloved, he's delivered you too. You see, my friend, if you believe you can lose your salvation, you were never saved to begin with, and you never once heard the voice of my Lord or ever once trusted in him. He declares, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. You see, the wicked love evil and hate righteousness. And so they've got to come up with all these rules and laws just to control themselves and trying to control others. And yet, they prosper. How many people did she claim went to that synagogue of Satan? I think she said like over 5,000 people attended the services there. Now, I don't want this nice lady to be so deceived. I mean, while she was speaking to Sandra in Spanish about keeping herself saved, I was preaching to her son in English about the one who saves us and keeps us saved. It's so sad, and it grieves me to see someone actually believing a lie and seemingly to prosper in it. As the Lord leads you, please pray for them and for all of us. You see, it grieved David to see the same thing in his day. Indeed, David wrote a whole psalm about it. In Psalm 73, he asks, in effect, God, why do they prosper? And God's people suffer so much. Now, this morning... I'm going to give you four words of comfort and encouragement. I trust they'll help us when our enemies prevail, persecuting us and mistreating us. First of all, beloved, when our enemies are prospering, when our enemies seemingly prevail, don't envy them. Remember, rather, their end. In Psalm 52, verse 5, the psalmist writes, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of the dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. And so, beloved, don't envy the wicked. God's going to destroy them completely and eternally. I don't want to be like them, do you? I don't want to have that end. You know, all their prosperity upon the earth during this time state is just a mirage, and it's going to bring them nothing but sorrow. I don't care how many people are attending where you go. If they're not preaching the gospel, you'll perish with that false message and that false Christ. I don't want that, and neither do you, beloved. And so don't envy the wicked when they prosper, because it's just temporary. For the reprobate's end will be eternal ruin. You see, God will completely destroy all those who do not trust in his Son, and that without mercy. Now, David gives us four ways the wicked are utterly and completely destroyed. First, David says, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. And that phrase means to pull down and to utterly break into pieces. Remember how Israel would go off into idolatry and they would build up all these altars and idols and they go in and destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Well, that's the same word here. They pull them down and utterly break them in pieces. And that's what God will do to his enemies. My friend, God is going to smash his enemies to smithereens and pull them down and utterly break them in pieces. 
Second, David says, God shall take thee away. Now that phrase means to tear out by the roots, twisting and pulling them out like a tornado comes to twist and pull everything out. My friend, that's the storm of God's wrath that's coming to pull them up by the roots and there'll be no more. Thirdly, pluck them, pluck thee out of thy dwelling. And that means to be utterly swept away, just like the chaff. You see, it's easily blown away. You know, when they're harvesting the wheat and they have all that chaff and you wonder what they're going to do with all this chaff, well, they'd fan it. And the chaff was gone and there was no evidence it was, there, it was ever there. It's so light and worthless, it's just blown away. And that's what's going to happen to the wicked. Everything that they hoped for, everything that they worked for, everything that they thought they were gathering up to protect themselves, they're going to find out it's worthless. God's going to blow it away and they'll be left with nothing. And fourth, David says, God's going to root thee out of the land of the living. My friend, that means exactly what you think it means. They're not going to be found in the land of the living. They'll be found in the land of the dead. God's going to put them there where they can't get out, just utterly ruined. Remember what our Lord said to that wicked man that trusted in his riches? Our Lord said to that man in hell, Between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. All right, Psalm 52, verse 6. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Now, that word wickedness can be rendered substance. And indeed, the wicked man gained his substance through his wickedness. But the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at the wicked. Now, that laugh is not a joyful laugh. It's not a mocking laugh. Rather, it's a serious, solemn laugh that shakes its head and says, ah, look at their awful end. They were so ambitious. They were so proud. And just like Doeg, the wicked wouldn't show mercy to anyone. And now look at their end. An end they didn't expect. An end without mercy from God. You see, they boasted in themselves. They wouldn't trust Christ. They didn't need to trust Christ. They vainly thought they could do it all on their own. And now look at them, spending an eternity all on their own in hell without Christ. Our Lord declares, If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now this says the righteous shall laugh, but beloved, don't laugh in joy at their coming end. Rather be sad for them and ask God to be merciful to them just like he was to you. And so what's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? What's the difference? Beloved, God's mercy has made us to differ. And so pray for them and do it in fear. David says here how the righteous shall see and fear. Beloved, do this in the fear of the Lord. You see, it's right for us to have a holy awe of God's justice and wrath. 
You see, God's holy justice and wrath is nothing to be trifled with. That's why we don't preach what men call hellfire and brimstone preaching in such a way as to scare people into coming to Christ. We don't do that. You see, God's holy justice and wrath is nothing to be trifled with. Rather, we're to treat it reverently, knowing the wicked's end is coming. And so don't be envious of them and remember their end. Outside of Christ, my friend, the wrath of God abideth on you. All right, the second thing is this. Beloved, when our enemies seem to prevail, when they prevail for a time, trust in the mercy of God forever. In verse 8, David says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Now, the tongue of the wicked that we spoke of earlier, you know, that's the tongue that we're all born with. We're all born with a tongue that lies. We're all born with a tongue that will slant the story in our own favor, that tells the story, that will present the facts in such a way that makes us to look better than we really are. You see, the nature we're all born with is a nature that loves self and hates God and hates others. I hear psychologists going on all the time with their psychobabble, saying how we've got to teach our children and teach everybody to love themselves. My friend, we don't need anybody to teach us that. For by nature, we love ourselves just fine. You see, we already know how to love our own selves. Rather, our problem is that we hate God and we hate others by nature. You see, we're born with a nature that boasts in self and will not, absolutely will not, bend the knee to beg God for salvation. Well, how can I be delivered from that? How can I be delivered from that unexpected end of the wicked? I mean, I was born the same with the same nature they were. And so how can I be delivered? Well, my only hope is found in God's mercy in Christ. You see, hope always looks to the mercy and goodness of God in Christ. And beloved, that mercy and goodness doesn't have any end. Look there at the end of verse 1. The goodness of God endureth... And what's that word say, beloved? <laughs> Continually. And so remember this, beloved. When the wicked seem to prosper, I don't care how long a man's mischief and rebellion might last. I mean, it might last a long time, but I know this. God's goodness and mercy is going to last longer. So, beloved, trust in God's mercy. You see, my friend, God will utterly pull down and break the wicked into pieces. But in mercy, he's going to build his people up in Christ. God is going to twist and tear the wicked up by the roots. But in goodness, he's going to plant his people in his house forever. God is going to root the wicked out of the land of the living, and they'll not be there. But he's going to put his people in the land of the living forever by his mercy. So, beloved, trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. My friend, it's worth trusting the God of all mercy. You see, I can trust in the God who is the Father of all mercies. And he's the fountain of all mercies. And because he's a fountain that will never run dry, I can continually trust in God. I can trust in his eternal electing mercy because I have, because I need God to choose me. Because left to myself, beloved, left to yourself, we'd never choose him. Paul told Timothy there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, 
how that God hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. And when was that? (laughs) Before the world began. You see, beloved, that's eternal electing mercy. You see, I can trust that. And I can trust in God's covenant mercy. Mercies in Christ, promised by our Heavenly Father who cannot lie. Now, David wrote this second, 52nd Psalm, and on his deathbed, he said the following, and this is recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. David said on his deathbed, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. I can trust in God's covenant mercies. David trusted them as he died on his deathbed, and he was never disappointed, being granted that expected end of God's people. My friend, I can trust in God's sovereign mercy because sovereign mercy depends upon the character of God and not on my sorry, sinful self. Romans 9, verse 15. I've been enjoying our study on Wednesday evenings in Romans. But there in Romans 9, verse 15, we read there, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. My friend, God's going to have mercy on whom he will. And nobody is going to stop him. You see, nobody is going to be able to stop God's mercy from coming to the object of his mercy. His beloved elect people. And so I can trust in that sovereign mercy because it's not dependent upon my sinful character, but rather ever so blessedly dependent upon the holy, sovereign character of God. I can trust his sovereign mercy. Nobody can take it away. I don't care how much it seems like the enemy is prevailing. You can't take it away, for it's God's sovereign mercy. And then I can trust in mercy that forgives. I don't know about you in the pew, but I sure know about this sinner behind the pulpit. I need God's forgiveness. And oh, how I thank him for it. I don't deserve it, but that's what saving mercy is all about. Not giving me what I do deserve, and by his grace, giving me what I don't. God told Moses there in Exodus 34, verse 7, He's keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. You see, God forgives sin, and he never clears the guilty. And so when God forgives sin, he does so by making his people (laughs) not guilty. (laughs) Now, I don't have this reference in my notes, but I'd like you to show you this remarkable account in the Gospel of John. Just after John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the very next part of the portion of John chapter 1, the Lamb of God declares of one of his precious sheep, one of his precious people. We read this in verse 47. The Lamb of God who John the that the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to what this sheep gets undeservedly here as our Lord declared to him. (laughs) 
He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, a sinner like you and me, beloved, in whom is no guile, <laughs> washed completely by the precious blood of Christ, truly and completely, and dressed, sovereignly dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. How else can our God say of this man, in whom is no guile, in whom is no duplicity, in whom is no guilt, behold, one of my precious sheep, innocent <laughs> before my throne of grace. And that's how we're found, beloved, through the precious blood of Christ and his righteousness. And so I can trust him because in of myself, I'm guilty and I need forgiveness. I need to be made not guilty. And so I can trust in God's mercy that forgives sin. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. I can trust in God's delivering mercy. You see, His delivering mercy doesn't wait on me to take the first step. No, no. Rather, saving mercy is His delivering me, not almost, <laughs> but to the uttermost. You see, I need that kind of mercy that delivered righteous lot. Again, look there with me in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 15. Genesis 19, verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, while he lingered, what a thing. Those angels told him to hurry up and get out of Dodge. We're going to destroy this place. And while he lingered, Beloved, while you live in this world that lieth in wickedness, do you not find yourself lingering, looking around at it, being drawn to the things of it? We need delivering mercy, don't we? And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Beloved, that's the first time we, the word mercy is used in Scripture. It's God's delivering mercy. You see, he doesn't wait on you to take the first step. No, no. Rather, the Lord laid hold of him and pulled him out and set him in a place of safety. Beloved, that's the kind of mercy that you and I need. Left to myself, left to yourself, we'd linger in our sin and iniquity. Beloved, you and I can trust in redeeming mercy, mercy that redeems the soul. David said in the 130th Psalm, verse 7, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's mercy, and with the Lord there's plenteous redemption. I don't need just a little bit of redemption. I don't need just a little bit of mercy. How about you? I need great mercy. I need plenteous redemption. That's God's mercy, and I can trust that. Then I can trust in preserving mercy. David said in Psalm 40, verse 11, Withhold not thou thy tender mercies for me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. My friend, that's what I need. I don't need God to have mercy on me, to set me down and let me run the rest of my, the rest of my way by myself. No, no. I need to be preserved continually. 
That's the kind of mercy I need. Look with me at Titus chapter 3. I love that verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It sets forth there how we're kept by the power of God through the faith, the uprightness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that ready salvation. And here in Titus 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now that's the kind of mercy I can trust in. The mercy that saves and gives eternal life by the new birth. And that's exactly what David's speaking about here. You see, when he speaks of the green olive tree, and if you return back with me to Psalm 52. Psalm 52. In verse 8, the psalmist writes there, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. And so when he speaks of the green olive tree, he's speaking about the Lord giving his people eternal life. And this tree that's been planted by the Lord, well, it can't be plucked up. The olive tree flourishes in the hottest climate, and it's full of oil. And that's a picture of life. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling in the believer. Again, David writes, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Now notice that word M in italics. Now without doing any damage to the text, I believe that word would have been more properly rendered shall. I shall be like a green olive tree, a fruitful, beautiful olive tree united to my Lord. He is the true vine, beloved, and we are the branches. And thou, and, and though it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Because as he is, beloved, so are we in this world. Now, you can't tell that from looking at the outside of a believer. From the outside, we don't look like this green, fertile olive tree that bears much fruit. Rather, we just look like a fig tree with no fruit at all. But, beloved, believe it by God's mercy. As he is so are we in this world. Now, how is he right now? He's without sin, wholly and completely accepted of the Father, seated at the right hand of our merciful Heavenly Father. And so, as he is, beloved, so are we in this world. Now, that's the mercy that I can trust in. Beloved, you and I can trust in that mercy. I mean, what else can a helpless sinner like you and a helpless sinner like me trust in. Is there anything else a sinner can trust in? Not one thing. I can't do anything to get God to save me. I can't, certainly can't be good enough for him to save me, to merit you know, his salvation. But I can trust in God's mercy to the guilty. I can trust in God's mercy for the ungodly in Christ. You see, God's mercy is the only hope, and it's a good hope for a sinner. And so when the enemy prevails, when they persecute you, and they seem to prosper for it, and they do you wrong, and they cheat you, and they seem to prosper for it, just hang on and trust in the mercy of the Lord forever. 
And beloved, not just when the, it's, it's going good, but forever and always. Thirdly, what am I to do when the wicked prevail against me? Well, we read there in verse 9 that God's people will praise the Lord. Verse 9 says, I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. Beloved, praise the Lord because his mercy endureth forever. You see, God's mercy is going to outlast this situation. It's going to outlast these circumstances. And so you can praise him for that. Beloved, we know, I love how the Lord sets forth to let us know. It's not something that we merely believe, (laughs) but we know. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God is sovereign, is he not? Then know this, beloved, God uses all things. And sometimes we will never understand why he does some things. Certainly not in this time state. But whatever it is, know this, beloved. God did this according to his will to accomplish his purpose to save all his beloved people. Now, although it may be very hard and painful to this flesh, we can praise the Lord in this. Our God reigneth. I don't have to think the world has gone off the rails or that the world has just gone crashing into the sun. Beloved, God is still accomplishing his purpose today, just like he was yesterday. You see, he always reigns and we just rest in him. You know, the Lord never promised his people they wouldn't hurt, did he? He promised, I'll send a comforter. We read in Isaiah chapter 12, you turn there with me, Isaiah Chapter 12, verse 1. In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. My friend, you just go to the Lord, and he'll comfort you in this thing. Yes, the enemies have seemingly prevailed. Yes, they have done you wrong. But praise the Lord, beloved, he'll comfort your heart. You see, everything he does is right. And whether it hurts my flesh or heals my flesh, whether I like it or don't like it, it doesn't matter, for everything God does is right. Beloved, if we would just praise the Lord, we'd have a whole lot less time to be unhappy and down in the mouth about the wicked if we would but open our mouth to praise the Lord. And so what do I do when seemingly the wicked prevail? What do you do, beloved? Wait. (laughs) Just wait on the Lord. Again, verse 9, Psalm 52, verse 9. I will praise thee forever, because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. Beloved, that's what we do when the enemy seemingly prevails. Wait on the Lord. I will praise thee forever, because thou hast done it. Beloved, on the cross, he said, it is finished. And in glory, he said, that salvation, the salvation he accomplished for his people, it is done. And so, beloved, you and I will wait on his name, for it is good before 
his saints. Amen.